Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to episode 12 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. We're picking up right where we last left off and continuing our monthly theme of student engagement. And today, we have the distinct privilege of welcoming to the show Dr. Darlene Hamanko, who is an alumna of the IMS and serves as the director of the Office of Technology Transfer and Industrial Liaison at the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute, better known as Mount Sinai Hospital. Now, what that means is she has a keen eye for new tech innovations that could improve healthcare. Darlene tells us about how she followed the road less traveled and went from aspiring meteorologist to pro basketball player to sales rep at a golf store to molecular biologist. You name it, she's done it. Darlene and I first met back in 2012 when she gave a talk about the importance of figuring out what you're good at and applying it to something you like, whether it's a career or a personal passion. Since then, I've invited her back every year to inform students about the importance of translational skills and to give me my annual pep talk. Whether you're still figuring out what to do in life or just in need of a gentle nudge in the right direction, this episode is not one to miss. And remember, we love making friends, so come find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast, or leave us a comment on our website. All right, everyone, orient your compass and follow me. As a little preamble, I actually wanted to talk about how we met. Sure. So we actually, if I remember correctly, I was working with the student council about four years ago, and we were planning an academic event, and someone had recommended you, and we had asked you to come in and give a talk to the students about translational skills development. And your talk was sort of focused on, well, there's different kinds of skills, right? And you have to figure out what you're, and everyone's good at something, everyone's got something, and you have to figure out what you're naturally good at. You also have to, have to figure out what you're not naturally good at and basically make it work for you. And so how do you combine, let's say, things, talents that you already sort of innately have and apply them in your work? And, I, and that blew my mind, by the way. I was just a master's student, but I thought, what? You can, you can, com you can combine work and research with things that you actually like? That that's, uh, seems like a that's new concept That's not what my supervisor me. told me. But that's right, yeah. We're actively discouraged from doing that. So the following year, I was actually in charge of the academic committee. And so I, I thought we definitely have, have to have you back. And uh, this was already now in 2013. And we were doing a little pre-interview uh, where I was talking to you with a colleague of mine. And we were just sort of saying, you know, give us uh, a little overview of your talk. And I think at some point toward the end, you asked me, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I kind of want to do everything. And I've <laughs> recently I've been toying around with the idea of maybe starting like a podcast or doing like voice acting or something. And you said, well, you should just try it. I mean, you know, just find a friend who shares your passion and just give it a go. And I thought, is this and then, yeah, is, is this is this a thing? And then lo and behold, a couple of years later, yeah. here we are. Here we are. So actually, I credit this to you. This, <laughs> yeah. this is the reason we're here is... Uh, is, is your doing. Well, thank you. I'm very flattered that you obviously have a very natural skill for it, so I'm glad that you followed it. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the different types of skills and what that talk is about? Sure. So I think what I was what I was alluding to and what I, I try and communicate to to students and to individuals when I mentor them is that you have you have certain skills that you need for a for a career. And when you wake up in the morning and you go to the office or you go into the lab or if you're, you know, if you're working um, a part-time job, you know, you go into your, you start your day off and there are th certain things you have to do. So we always kind of bend them into hard skills, what they call hard skills, and which are more technical type of skills, and soft skills. And the hard skills are things like being able to type on a computer, learning how to use um, um, software programs, um, being able to change a light bulb. That uh, another, hard, another example for hard skills specifically for scientists are things like being able to you know, run an autoclave, prepare for an autoclave, um, make, up, make up your solutions, keep Just a clean very environment. Very specific things. Yeah, these are all very specific to what you do. Now, if you work in a lab, you can probably work in any lab. But, so that means that some hard skills are transferable. But not all hard skills are transferable. So you, because you work in a, in a biotechnology lab, doesn't necessarily mean you can work in, in an electrical engineering lab. There are different types of skills, hard skills that are very specific to different industry sectors. Some of these are transferable and some of these are not. You know, if, if, you're, if you're really thinking of changing your career um, and going into another another area that is perhaps not science, then you really have to sit down and say, okay, well, what is that industry sector? What are the particular aspects of that industry that are really hard skills? So am I going to need to learn how to operate a machine? 
If I'm going to be a firefighter, I'm going to have to really learn how to operate machinery. I'm going to have to learn how to drive a truck, you know, things like that. Those are hard skills. The soft skills are more skills that allow you to work, number one, independently. Part of your, so- your soft skills are your, um, your emotional intelligence, but it's not just your emotional intelligence. It's your cognitive ability to start something, finish it, manage yourself, work with your colleagues, um, understand how to help your colleagues, and uh, to be an asset in whatever environment you're in. And that could be an asset, you know, when you're working part-time, perhaps you're, you're waiting on tables. You know, how do you be the waiter or the waitress that, you know, is, you know, comes in all the time, does their job, does it well, gets good tips, and the entire staff likes to work with them. Do you think that presentation and teaching are also soft skills? Yes. Communication skills is often emphasized, but I think the worry is how do you prevent yourself from from coming across like a marketer and someone who's just interested? So the difference, that's right. So, and and that's a very good question because many years ago I, I met an individual and they were, they were excellent communicators. I would say high emotional intelligence, but every time the individual would give a presentation, I felt I was being sold, quote unquote sold. (laughs) You know, I was like, this is interesting. Why am I getting this kind of feedback, this kind of feeling from this person? Kind of want to invest in mouse models now. I don't know why. (laughs) Exactly. And it was like, but I'm always feeling like I'm getting sold. Like there's something not quite, like almost like there is a a kind of, like he's got a, a, he or she had a shtick to it, you know. And Was it like really on the persuasion side or just the way he was just... I, I think it was just the way that he, they were presenting it yeah. and their manner. And I think after, if you do it all the time, very often, then I think you develop a rote to, to the presentation. I think you become somewhat um, focused on getting the material through and, and through the material versus actually interacting with your audience. So I think that's the difference is if when you, when you communicate with somebody, if when people say, well, they, were, they came across as really authentic and really approachable, uh, and open. I think that those individuals make more of a, um, whether it's concerted effort or not, they're more able to make a connection with their audience, whether it's um, through manners, their mannerisms, or it's uh, through you know engaging the audience in a certain way. But they're able to do that more effectively, and it's not it's not consistent. And it's interesting how that's almost completely nonverbal. Exactly. It's a it's a vibe as people exactly. would describe it. You know, you see someone exactly. and you're like, oh, that person really right. rubbed me the right way. Kind of exactly. Thing. Exactly. So, what do you feel is the greatest skill that you've gained through your graduate school? We'll touch upon your background in this. Yeah, I still I, I think the greatest skill I attribute to my graduate career coming out with um, the knowledge that you can make things happen if you believe strongly enough in them and you you put your effort to them and you don't quit. And sticking with it is, some people call it determination. It's, again, that's a soft skill. Um, uh, discipline, that's a soft skill. I think there's a skill in being able to wrap it all together and making it all happen. And I think that's the skill that I'm, I'm proud to say that I, if I want to, <laughs> I can do it. And I can do it. I'm, I mean, I've done it many times in my athletic career and my personal life. But I'd ne- before finishing my PhD, I'd never quite done it in an academic Career, and I think I think that's especially that focus on skills is especially important for grad students because academia. I tell people academia can be somewhat isolating sometimes, yeah. and it is very much a choose your own adventure. It is right. I mean, yeah. outside the lab, you can yeah. do as much or as little as you want, either to support your research mm-hmm. career or to maybe take other avenues. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of grad students, especially master students, so this is why the, your your talk really spoke to me because I was doing a master's and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after. And I think a lot of master's students are in the same boat. I mean, there's definitely the group that wants to apply to professional school or maybe go right into academia, mm-hmm. but that's a, a fairly small percentage, I think. And we were talking to Dr. Reitmeier, who's mm-hmm. a, a lecturer at the University of Toronto, and he does a lot of other things too, and he talks about mentorship and why that's important. And he was telling us that I, I think only about 15 to 20% of, of PhD graduates from the UT actually go into academia. So the question is, where do the others end up, right? And I think for, for master's students, it's even it's about that number, if not less. And I think that's something else that we, he emphasized during our conversation was 
informational interviews because you always hear that. That's right. That's and right. What is informational well, what interface? Is, yeah. Like, yeah. What is it and how, how can you use it effectively? Like, what goes into having a good informational interview with someone and walking away? I learned a lot. So I think they're the best things to do because you actually go and you meet with somebody who's actually doing the job that you want to do. And you hear about what, what their job, their, their, their day-to-day is like, what their challenges are. And, you know, you, it gives you a different perspective on what you think it is. Um, because I think when you're, as I recall, when I was a student, you know, there's the focus on, well, what's the next step? And then you're always looking, well, then what's the step after that? And people are always saying, well, what's your five-year plan? What's your three-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? And, and some of these things are driven, for many people, it's driven by, you know, your, your cultural background, your, your priorities, your financial situation. I mean, there's a lot of things that play into this. So when you go and you meet with somebody and you, and who's perhaps, say you want to, you're thinking, well, you know, I, I really would like to work in pharmaceutical, in the pharmaceutical industry. I think I'd be really good in regulatory affairs. Well, have you ever talked to anybody who actually does regulatory affairs on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> I mean, do you know what regulatory affairs is all about? And if you say if you're if you're going to say no, well then you should meet with somebody who's in regulatory affairs, and then you'll learn how much paperwork there is to do, and how much it's a very highly intensive administrative job, and you have to be very precise, a very detail oriented person. So if you're not, you know, if you're not a very detail oriented person, and you're not um, you're not really good at filling out forms, um, and you don't respond quickly, then you're probably not the person for regulatory affairs. And you're probably going to feel challenged. And that's where I go back to the, the thinking of, you know, what are your skills? What are your, your natural skills? And, you know, what, what, what kind of skills do you have that would then match with that kind of a job? But how do you prepare effectively for it? Because I'm sure you've done... Yeah, you know, I've have done, and I still do them. And you still do them. I still do them. them. You have some people coming to you to talk about what you do. That's right. What would you tell someone that they're, let's say, interested in consulting? They're in their graduate degree right now, looking beyond non-academic careers. How do you prepare for a good informational interview with a senior consultant? So I would, I would have uh, asked the individual or suggested the individual. Individual. So read up on consulting companies. So spend a little time. See, what the difference now is that you have the internet. Like back when we didn't have, the internet wasn't, not everybody yet had a web page when I was, when I was finishing my PhD. So you're still doing a lot of cold calls. And they were all under construction. That's right. (laughs) They have those little construction signs. So now you can do all this background research on the internet for free. You could go and, you know, put, type in consulting companies in Toronto and you'll get a whole list of maybe, you'll have five or six big ones that come right up and consulting companies in biology, consulting companies in engineering. So you're ready to go in and ask the individual, so how are you structured? You know, how is, how does your company work? You know, do you do RFPs? What is an RFP? You know, how off, how quickly do you get the RFPs? Um, do you have certain people that do the RFPs or do you all do them? Um, how much of your job is, is outside the office? How much of it is it inside the office? So you want to put your, yourself in that job. You want to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to be a consultant. So what do I do? Like, do I work at home? Do I go to an office? Who do I report to? And so you go through these questions and, and that's, those are the types of questions that I would suggest you'd ask uh, the person you're having the informational interview with. And you do that for, for pretty much anything because when, once you've established your career or started out in a career, you'll get to a point where you're, you're actually doing well in your career and you're very comfortable, you're challenged, um, but things are, are moving well. And, but you're still going to feel like possibly, perhaps not everybody, but some, a lot of people still feel, well, I, I want to give back more to the industry sector, or I want to be able to to give just just on a personal note, give back more of myself in a mentoring role, or to sit on a board for a company or for a not for profit. Doesn't have to even be for work; it could be for for a personal um, interest that you want to sit on a board or get involved with a group. So you do the same thing. Basically, interview somebody who sits on a board for a company that you want to be on that board. And the same thing, you may want to join a a sailing club. So you would interview somebody, well, so what's it like here at the club? You know, how many people hang around? What, is it, or what are the social events like? Um, do you have to have your own boat? And so it's a similar type of, of engagement of conversation. And tell me if you agree. Someone told me that it, it can be very informal. It can be as simple as just maybe finding someone and saying, hey, I'd like to buy you a cup of coffee. Maybe just absolutely. tell me what your day's like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're going to find that most people who, who are asked to do this, are very very comfortable and very um, positive about it. They're they're not going to say no. People like to talk about 
their job and themselves. And it's a, it's not a vain thing, <laughs> but I think uh, from my experience, people just they know the people that they they're in a position where they're in a good place and they're in a good position, and that it's um, it's a kind thing to do to offer some feedback to somebody who's trying to make their way. And I, I've I've, don't, I've never been turned down for one, and, and I've never turned anybody else down. Hi everyone, this is Melissa, and today I am happy to introduce uh, Liam O'Leary, who is the Graduate Programming Coordinator for the School of Graduate Studies. Thank you for joining us, Liam. Thanks for having me on. I just wanted to start off by asking you a bit about your educational background and how you came to be at the University of Toronto with the School of Graduate Studies. Absolutely. So I have a, a Master's in Adult Education, which I did, which I did at OISE here oh, at nice. U of T. And prior to doing my Master's, I worked in youth development, running programs for young people, um, both nationally and internationally, for quite a number of years. And I picked up a lot of skills um, along the way, and I really did a lot of education and really enjoyed it. Decided to come back, did a master's in education, and um, got involved with um, the Graduate Professional Skills Program, the GPS program in the School of Graduate Studies. And was that program already established when you came back to U of T? It, uh, it has expanded a lot, mm-hmm. I'll tell you, since, um, since I've been in the role. We've seen How long a really have you been huge here? Expansion. I've been in my current role for, for three years, mm-hmm. and I've been involved with the GPS program for four and a half years. So as a, as a student, I uh, was on the GPS curriculum committee, and um, we were trying to find ways to like build it and to see ways that we could grow it and expand it, address new needs, um, develop innovative programming, increase the outreach. So maybe tell us a bit about what was the drive to create the GPS program? Yeah, so the the GPS program came out of came out of a recognition that graduate students wanted more professional development. They wanted more professional development to support them in their own programs, to finish their own programs. And they wanted um, professional development so they could launch a variety of careers. Um, it was becoming well known at that point. It was becoming, um, it's more well known now, but it was becoming apparent that many people who finished a PhD weren't going on to academic positions. They were moving into industry. It was also becoming aware that there were a lot of resources, workshops, offerings, um, non-credit courses that were available for students to help them kind of reach milestones in their graduate their graduate time here, their graduate program, but they weren't brought together um, within a program in a structured way. So GPS was able to address that by bringing offerings, many of them that were already available, into a program and um, packaging it and developing new programs to meet the diverse needs of our student body. And you guys work with um, other, not initiatives, but um, programs within U of T, so with the libraries. and mm-hmm. uh, We have lots of program partners. Um, the libraries, the Center for Teaching Support and Innovation, um, Student Life, the Career Center, the Leadership Office, um, external partners such as MyTex, student groups such as Graduate Management Consulting Association, mm-hmm. Let's Talk Science. Health and wellness. We have a lot of a lot of program partners, and they really help us deliver a lot of our a lot of our programming. That's great. So it's really sort of addressing this holistic um, mm. approach to like building a better grad student, I guess. A- absolutely. So we have four broad areas in the GPS program, and a lot of it approaches like the personal and the professional. So we have personal effectiveness, um, communication and personal skills, research related skills, and teaching competency. So the first one I mentioned, personal effectiveness. Often people think of that as like leadership. So many of these like personal skills that will help you do better in what you are. Communication and personal skills, um, it's pretty straightforward. A lot of people know what that is, but could include like team building, working in groups, oral presentation skills, presenting your research, teaching competency. A lot of those are related to um, how to become a better teacher, how to pick up some of those skills that will be really important for an academic or non-academic program. Mm-hmm. And then research-related skills. A lot of those are the ones that will really help you in your program. And um, employers love graduates because they have great research skills. So these are ways you can pick up some skills outside of your program. Is there any specific courses that you teach specifically or anything that you would really recommend to students to take or start off with with GPS? 
Yeah, so I I teach a, I teach a variety of, of workshops myself. I teach a lot of leadership workshops. Um, I teach a lot of workshops within the Summer Institute for Graduate Professional Development, which is all accredited through GPS. So I I always promote the the Summer Institute because we run we run three streams. So there's a there's a leadership stream. There's um, like a leadership stream kind of managing transitions, and there's another one about kind of landing an academic job. So it's not just about, you know, moving to industry and, and yeah, stuff. yeah. But so we have that we have the two stream we have the three sort of streams. We have the, you know, leadership streams which are gonna help you in um, in an academic job or non academic job. Then we have the academic stream which is gonna be really helpful in that. So I partner with a lot of faculty members. I ask people to kind of come in. We have really interesting guest speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really, really great, really great way of doing it. Yeah, it sounds like people like <clears throat> across U of T campus are quite involved. And mm-hmm. um, are these things also offered at the other U of T campuses? So U of T SC and U of T Mississauga? Yeah, so in at our other campuses, and um, in Scarborough and in Mississauga, um, there are other, other coordinators who... Oh, great. Um, there are other users. They're, they're like they're other me. Yeah. yeah. And they're um they're they're developing um workshop sessions, they're promoting them. And so um it's great to uh, to connect in with some of those. And certainly people um who maybe are studying at St. George um can take workshops at at either college. So And it counts campus. towards your GPS credits. Yeah, it counts yeah. towards your GPS credits. So I should probably talk a little yeah. bit about the GPS and credits. And so how do you complete GPS? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you complete GPS? Um, we want to recognize the work that goes into to these it's professional developments. It's a lot of hours, yeah. It's a lot of hours, yeah. yeah. If... If someone wishes to um, enroll in GPS and complete the program, completing the program is 20 credits. So we have GPS credits. One credit is roughly hour, roughly equivalent to three hours of instruction, so roughly a three-hour workshop. Mm-hmm. If you complete 20 credits, so roughly 60 hours, um, you'll get a notation on your transcript. And that's something that you can go and take to potential employers or... Absolutely. Um, I guess, even in academia and non-academic jobs, right? And say, look, this is something that is important to me. Like, I've really worked on mm-hmm. bettering myself in these skills. Yeah. Um, and we want students to have, um, like, breadth and depth. So we want students to have five GPS credits in three of the four areas and then five credits in another one. So, for so example, you- five credits in research-related skills, five in interpersonal skills, um, five in teaching competency, and then, you know, kind of more around other ones. Yeah. So how long have you been talking about translational skills and... Oh, uh, let me see now. I mean, it's kind of been your life story in a way. Well, I I think that was was the the beginning part of it was that when I first graduated from the Institute of of Medical Sciences, I was able to to find a job in in, in an area that I didn't think I'd ever be in. And then, you know, once I was, had a little bit of experience there and and made reconnected with with the IMS. It was like, well, wow, like you're you were here doing like a hardcore science. And now you're over on Bay Street, helping with startup com- create startup companies. So how did how did you do that? And so then you know there was a whole story around well how my name kept coming up on a, a resume search and et cetera et cetera. But I th- I think the the key there wasn't so much that it was serendipitous that I found the position. But I think what wasn't ser- serendipitous was that when I actually got there. The skills that I'd, I had acquired, my part-time job at a golf store, really helped me understand the, the the business world that I was actually working in now so I could actually talk to these people. Uh, and I think that that's one of the biggest skills that people, especially now, we, we, we're starting to forget. You have to be able to, to relate to somebody when you're speaking with them so that they understand what you're doing and that you're, you're actually able to communicate your, your ideas and your thoughts and your your, your wishes to them. And if you so, if you can't communicate, um, it's it's very difficult um, because you have to be able to relate to each other, and that's because that's the only way most of the time you get engagement and you get and you get their um, their buy-in and you get their support. So I, th- I think we're we may be moving towards a place now where we're starting to lose a little bit of that, and that's why the informational interviews are so important. Now, the major thing about an informational interview is that you, you, they're not about getting a job. So people have to remember that that. 
best thing is don't bring your CV. <laughs> don't bring your CV. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, really, it, it's sit, you know, sit down. You're, you're talking to somebody about a certain um, job that they do, and uh, you want to learn more about that industry sector. Uh, you don't even really want to know that much more about them. You're, you're interested in them, but it's really more like what they do. So that, you know, the soft touch person to person there is, is more about really the the job and, and the industry sector. I tell this to undergrads as well because they're always looking for research opportunities. That's right. And I tell them, well, don't don't ask in the email, hey, I'm looking for a volunteer That's research right. opportunity. Right. Just say, hey, I'm really interested in your work. I appreciate what you do. Yeah. Can we talk about you know this project? Because right. I have a couple of questions. Is, are you free? Mm-hmm. Whatever's easiest, I can do it over the phone, email, or over coffee. That's right. And then it's going from there. You don't ask directly. You just have a good conversation. And from there... They could say, you know what, you could fit here. Exactly, exactly. And, and Darlene, uh, it's been very, it's ap- very apropos that you talk about translational skills because uh, you sort of touched many different fields. I remember, I think you even told us that back in the day you wanted to be a meteorologist. I did. Uh, <laughs> I love the weather. The weather's cool. Broken dreams. Uh, yeah. I, you... I, 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 it was, you know, I could not do electromagnetism. I just, I, it's, it's taken me like 45 years to actually understand electromagnetism. So. I think that's every, every biology student's least favorite section in physics is electromagnetism. Yeah. Do you understand it now? You want to I do. I'm not sure I gave you an explanation, but I, 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 I understand now, you know, barometric pressure dropping and pressure. Pre- I mean, I, I get it now. Right hand rule, guys. Right hand rule. That's right. That's right. So can you tell us a little bit about your maybe early beginnings and early education, what you studied and how you went from one degree to another? Things sure. that worked, things that didn't work? Well, you know, it's interesting you ask that because about a month ago, I had this opportunity to play golf with one of the top world junior girl golfers. I mean, this young young lady is 16 years old. She's a young girl. She's 16 years old. And she's um, going to be headed to Stanford, I think, next year. Whoa. I know. On a golf scholarship. And she's really smart. And But she wants to go into engineering. Uh, and her father's saying, well, no, don't go into engineering because um, you can't play golf if you go into engineering. And they tell them right away at Stanford, if you're going to play golf, you can't go into engineering or, or science. So I said to her, I said, you know, don't worry about it. Play golf as long as you want and, you know, use the scholarship and go into something that, you know, you're, you like and you enjoy. Take the science courses on the side. So this way you keep your, your brain fresh, you keep your maths up, and you get all your prerequisite courses done. So when golf is finished, you know, it may, maybe you'll make the LPGA, maybe you won't. You don't, you don't know what your future career is, but at least you have all your math prerequisites, and then you can do an engineering degree. For sure. And there's no reason to say you can't do an engineering degree when you're 24 or 25. It doesn't always have to be when you're 19. So, so she said, oh, I never thought about it that way. And I said, uh, so I went home and I, I told my mother and, I, and she looked at me and she smiled. And she said, see, you should have listened. You listened to your mother. <laughs> and I said, because that's exactly what I did. I, I, I struggled with, um, with really hardcore science when I was in, um, in Vanier College and, and uh, decided that, you know, what I really liked was psychology and I wanted to do psychology science anyways. So I changed my, my major to psychology and did all the sciences on the side, uh, the chemistry and physics and, um, and biologies that I needed to get into university. And this way I could qualify, get my grades up, and I could still play basketball. Because at the time I was, I was um, a very good basketball player and I was trying to get a, a scholarship um, to play in the United States. Wound up that I did get the scholarship, went down to the University of Rhode Island. Um, I studied science and physical education when I was in Rhode Island. And did the same thing when I was in Rhode Island. I had a minor in biology. So when I came back to Canada, I was able to get into a kinesiology program at Dalhousie. And then... um, For your master's. For my master's. Was successful in getting into University of Toronto and do a PhD, which wound up being neuroscience through the IMS. So uh, I've always, in some ways, been able to, you know, have my cake and eat it too, in the sense that I always was doing research or studying in an area that I was really interested. And I never really worried about a job later on or my career later on because I always knew that it would be always it was going to be something I liked to do anyways. And I never really had a hard time getting along with people and I was responsible and I perhaps a little too responsible sometimes, but <laughs> I guess you can't always be too responsible, but you know, you you, you just keep trying to do the best that you can. Uh, for whatever day that is. And it doesn't, I mean, and there, there were some difficult uh, times you know, between the, you know, the master's degree and um, the PhD in, at U of T. 
Um, I, I had a one year at uh, York, which didn't go so well, and I was reevaluating whether I really wanted to go into science. And Can you tell us about PhD. that? Because those moments of doubt usually are moments of clarity in some cases. Yeah, well, I think um, I think a lot of it, it was that um, I really wasn't ready for the type of PhD program that it was. Um, so I came from an environment um, at Dalhousie that was very very small. Uh, everybody knew each other and very, very supportive. We had, I think, five students in the graduate program. Oh, wow. We all knew each other and the researchers knew each other. And it was almost like a, a little camp. It was almost like going to master's camp and, and, and everything. And, and Halifax had that kind of smallness to it. Mm. So going from Halifax to, and the campus also was small. It was more like being on, um, it's, it was more like being at U of T as St. George campus, but only like half the campus. Yeah. Just Scarborough campus. That's where I'm from. Okay. Okay. Scarborough, Mississauga. So it was, it was small and, and very contained. So coming to Toronto from Halifax, you know, and I been like Rhode Island was small, and and then going and it was all by the ocean, and you know I spent spent ten years of my life living by the ocean, and then moving to Toronto at that time, which is like the late '80s. This is the big city, and it was even bigger than Montreal, where where I'd grown up. So it was very urban. So I think there were there were a lot of there were a lot of things going on at the time for myself that were making to make it more of an uphill climb. Also, the program was really highly science intensive. Mm -hmm. So most of the people who were in the program had, you know, very strong science backgrounds. And whereas I was coming, in my opinion, I was coming from more of an applied, like I'd taken the science I needed to take and I, I, I worked my way through as a learning experientially. So I would learn a lot of lab techniques, um, titration, yeah, the hard skills, because somebody showed me how to do it. Technician taught me how to do it. I didn't take a lot of lab, lab courses when I was in, in Rhode Island. And you know, I didn't take a lot of them when I was at Dalhousie. So there was a certain level of expectation of, of hard skill science capability. So and if you didn't have it, you really had to get it fast. So there was, so with the workload, I think, with, which was very, I found it extremely challenging. A lot of pressure to get a, you know, project going early. Um, and also, you know, I, I, I went there wanting to do one project and then had to change into another project, which wasn't, I wasn't as excited about, and I think when you're when you're doing research and you're self-directing your own work, I think that you have to own that project, and you have to you have to like the work that you're doing, and For you sure. have to be committed to it. Because there's know. a lot of readings that go into a lot. That's of right. That's right. If you're not really all that keen on it, and you don't, you know, you don't you, like it's interesting, but it's not. The crossword's more interesting than, you know, you, you sit there and go, I don't, I don't think this is going to work. You this know? is a sign. That's right. That's right. So, you know, and then the environment back in the day at York is, isn't like it is today. I mean, York is a really nice campus right now. But well, a long time ago, it was, especially in the winter, it was a really, it was, it was a very difficult place to, you know, to, to get around. And there was a lot of isolation between groups. Now it's not like that at all. But back, back then it was. So all in all, it, it just wasn't, um, it wasn't a good fit. You spent about a year there? Or? I was there for one year. Yeah. 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 So, so what I, was it about U of T that worked better? I mean, other than just geographically? Oh, uh, well, one, I came with a project. So I took two years off in between. Oh, and what did you do there? Oh, so, so after I, well, I, you know, when you, when you fail, uh, you're at kind of a dream. Like I, I was thinking, well, you know, I'll go do my PhD at York and then I'll, I'll go and be a research scientist or I'll, I'll, I'll teach so I, you know, I had to reevaluate, you know, really what my goals were. And I thought to myself, well, now the good thing that happened at York, besides, I mean, which, I mean, the, I look back at it now, it was really a good thing I failed uh, because it also taught me how to deal with failure and that, you know, not everything's going to work the first time you do it. No matter how hard sometimes you work at something, this is a dead end. You know, it says dead end. <laughs> you can't go that way. <laughs> you have to turn around. You have to turn around. So it wound up being a turnaround. And uh, with that turnaround, though, I was able to receive an NSERC grant. So I had a two-year NSERC grant that I could take with me anywhere I wanted. And I had two years to decide um, whether or not I was going to use it. At the time, I was living in Toronto. I had no more money. I needed a job. So I was able to, I was very fortunate that I was introduced to Rob Inman down at uh, Toronto Western Hospital, and Rob uh, introduced me to a colleague of his, Wayne Marshall, an orthopedic surgeon over at uh, at the Western, and uh, just wound up that he needed somebody to help him process some data for him for his um, uh, PhD thesis. And wound up developing, um, you know, a good rapport with himself. Introduced to his um, colleague um, Elizabeth Terrio, who wound up being my PhD supervisor. 
and I spent the next two years working in uh, working for them on an arthritis grant. And it was the an observation that I made with a summer student on one of the research projects that wound up being my the basis of my my PhD. So I was downtown. I was working downtown. By then, I was very comfortable in Toronto. I was you know getting around easier on the subways, much more like when I was when I grew up in Montreal on the subways all the time on the buses. So I was familiar with this lifestyle. I was familiar with all this, and so it was, it was the comfort level and the, the confidence level grew. And when you have people who really want, you know, you work on a project, and and they they give you feedback that they're really happy that you're there, and they get you to work, and you're happy that you you like them. I mean, it was more of a. It just seemed like this was more of a win-win proposition. The timing was right. That's right. And even though I had to do some courses that were pretty difficult. The pain course that we did with Dr. You know, Jonathan Dostrovsky back in the day, that was a really, really tough course. I mean, it really was hard. But, but it was fascinating. You know, it was fascinating, and I, I loved it. You know, I would take my, my research articles to hockey tournaments on the weekend, and I'd do all my readings on the weekend, and absolutely positively loved it. And it sounds like despite it being yeah. a super engaging experience for you, you kind of knew that academia still wasn't uh, in the cards for you. That's right. That's right. Because like 15, 15 years, over 15 years that right. you're in commercialization. That's right. How did that happen? Well, you know, I I got to a point, I think, when I was doing my research, I realized, you know, it, it's just, um, I can't I can't face another, what, 10 to 15 years of doing this to, to get grants. I don't, like, I like it, but it... Right, not to sort of diminish the experience of the PhD, because that oh, probably came with a lot of skills, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. too. No, absolutely positively not, but I look at them very differently. Um, acquiring the PhD, you, you actually acquire a whole lot of skills. Um, I defer back to my Swiss Army knife analogy. That's what I always do. <laughs> always, right. He always uses it. Every time, it's, every it's episode. A great, it's, a great, it's a great analogy. No, it's just that being a career scientist, you have to really, you have to really like writing, uh, writing grants. You have to really enjoy that process. And, 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 the, and even like, I'll be honest with you, even in the, the job I do now, like that, that is not an area of strength for me, like to write a, to write a, a writing proposals, writing grants, writing things down to then move forward, that's not a, that's not a strength. Um, you know, I still this, to this day I kind of chuckle because when I ran the Bioscience Network, my assistant, I always had my assistant fill out all the forms. Because if I fill out the form, we have to have three copies. The first one I do in pencil. The second one <laughs> that it can be the ink and it's going to make a mistake. And then the third oh one. That's right. And the third one you just copy. Just copy. Exactly. Just copy from the pencil. That's so, what I'm like when I'm writing birthday cards. you yeah. got to get two garbage ones. That That's right. Just, just going to be thrown out. Now, but it's it's more than that. It's, it's you know, it, it, running a lab, I that now I would, like I run an office here. So I, I really enjoy working with people and I, I really... Um, I mean, that's really what's the driver for me on a day-to-day basis is, you know, the people that I work with, um, learning from them, um, and being engaged in, in an area that is always, there's always something new happening. Um, nothing ever gets old here. What's something that's coming up soon that you're excited about? What's something that I'm excited about that's coming up soon? I mean, the most, the most popular one, the one that I get a lot of questions about, is the mini MBA I'm by the Graduate Management too, yeah. Consulting <laughs> Association? Yeah, it is. Um, it's run by it's run by Deloitte. Yeah, um, so Deloitte consultants that come in. It's ten weeks long, two hours per week. It follows the ten day MBA. It's, it's, a, it's a book that goes out each each day. Is um, they talk about different um, a different aspect of the mini MBA. There are case studies and there's a case competition at the end. People really like it. Yeah. They really enjoy it. And I think Graduate Management Consulting Association, they do a great job with putting it together. And so uh, it's always an exciting time yeah. when, um, when it's being run. My, my tip for people who want to um, want to take part in that is get involved with the Graduate Management Consulting Association. Oh, okay. Like get, get involved with them. They have a lot of, lot of other great events, a lot of other great workshops. And do they partner with other companies besides Deloitte, for example? Or? So they have, they have a lot of relationships with different consulting firms. Awesome. And so um, it's, uh, it's, it's great to uh, just to, to go to some of their, their open houses, go to some events, 
and kind of get to know them because um, they have they have a lot good connections. Good. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I also highly recommend a lot of the courses that non-credit courses that English language and writing support offer. ELWS. Often when someone finishes the GPS program, if I can, I try to I try to meet them for coffee afterwards. I try to like just get a sense of you know if our schedules can meet and we can just have a quick like chat. It's like, what did what did you really like about this program? What really worked for you? And um, a lot of people say you know um, the how to write a shirk and circus HR funding proposal like really helps really helps yeah oral presentation skills um, within the the weeks that that was a part of you know I I was working on a conference paper I presented it there we fine-tuned it I delivered it afterwards and it was great I mean those they have some really high quality high quality offerings and so I was going to ask yeah Mm -hmm. what sort of feedback you've gotten but also um, can you bring your research to people who are running the workshops like can you bring uh, maybe a presentation that you're working on to presentation skills workshop and get their input on it or anything like that i mean absolutely for for um oral presentation skills that's the point we want it to be embedded for how to write a a shirk and circus hr proposal you're gonna write that proposal and and you're gonna get some feedback on it so we like to think of um gps as being integral to to what you're what you're doing it's just it's a piece of the of the graduate, the graduate puzzle. puzzle. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that your slogan for it? I just I just first time I've said it actually. <laughs> no, you should write it down. <laughs> I will. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, are you still in touch with like uh, alumni who have completed GPS and moved on from graduate school, and have they given you any sort of feedback or brought up uh, maybe new courses that could the GPS could include? Yeah. So so I mean I I love hearing from I love hearing from graduate alumni and I love especially hearing from graduate alumni who finished the GPS program and who tell me like you know this is really useful and we'd like more of this and I am trying to always kind of like bring in more opportunities and uh, more things around graduate professional development more broadly and GPS specifically as well or specific courses you know like you got amazing feedback like maybe yeah. offer them more often yeah. or yeah yeah I mean absolutely so I mean we're we're trying to run um, as many workshops often as we can and we're always looking um, you know is there a better time to do it we're always trying to get feedback on like what's what's the best time for people to run workshops and we're yeah, that's great. As much as and can. get a good turnout and really get yeah. as many students as possible to benefit. Absolutely. We want to have as big an impact as we can. Awesome. I think that's a perfect place to end. So thank you for joining me, Liam. Thank you. And have Listen. a great day. Can you tell us a little bit more about your position? So I we do, um, what we do here is, uh, or at least what I do on a day-to-day basis, I mean, we have a patent agent here, so I don't do quite as much patent evaluation as I used to do, but we still look at technologies and evaluate the patent position. We 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 find out, you know, what type of a product, you know, the 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 technology or the invention would would lead to. We do a little bit of competitive analysis and on what other products are out there and what other what the patent landscape looks like. All under the arm of biotech, or all under the arm of biotech, because being here at the hospital at Mount Sinai, you're pretty much focused on cancer, cancer disease uh, inventions are associated with, with cancer di- uh, therapeutics diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, a little bit of orthopedics, some surgery, surgery, um, some emergency, emergency medicine, geriatric psychiatry tools that are like digital applications for, to manage patients better and work with patients. So that's another area that's absolutely fascinating. We're you know, using, using new technology tools and understanding how, how to use them to help manage chronic disease conditions from the medical aspect, but the health aspect is both a, a mental health support as well as a physical health. So that's actually really exciting. But having said that, I also do a lot of contract review. So I, I tell people I do, I'm almost a paralegal in the sense, I'm sure if I wanted to pass the paralegal test, I could probably become a paralegal. And we do, I do a lot of contract review here. I have two, um, actually three lawyers, and we do work on clinical research contracts. And we have to, I have to understand issues around liability and insurance and risk for the hospital. And business decision is, obviously, it's my decision with regards to new inventions and clinical research that's done here at the hospital. Uh, I do that with Jim Woodgett, our director. Uh, and we have a clinical research committee as well. Dr. Bernard Zinman is our chair right now. And so it's, it's quite a, the other beautiful thing about working here is that it's, it's a big family. Like we all, it's small enough that we all kind of know each other, 
I mean, it's not so big that, and we see each other on an off-regular basis. Yeah. Which is really nice. That's, that's, that's quite different than some of the other hospitals. I was just going to say, you touched on a bit about, like, the priorities that are different in engaging in research in the yes. industry yep. and in academia, whether it's generating new knowledge versus solving a specific problem. But what's the differences in what motivates people? Because for someone interested in academia, they're thinking tenure-track position. Mm -hmm. So in your position in industry, biotech, intellectual property, and you're still engaging in research contract. What what's motivating you to improve, keep doing better, take it to the next level? Well, I, I it's in in a, in a hospital research institute. It's it's helping find that invention that's going to make patients' lives better. I mean, that's the really neat thing about working with a geriatric psychiatrist, working with um, you know the research scientists here that are coming up with new 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 inventions that we can patent, so that Hopefully there will be a, you know, a, a new way to treat a certain type of cancer, a new way to treat a certain type of di uh, you know, diabetic uh, presentation. You know, the, it, that's what's fascinating. You know, it's the, the minds of the people around here and the things they come up with and whether or not you can actually, you know, how do you use that? Because a lot of what we do in this office is commercialization and it is, it's trying to get or trying to get something to a commercialization point. So, which brings industry here. But the other piece that we do quite a bit here is the translational, translational side of knowledge, uh, knowledge acquisition. So a lot of the researchers here will get grants, and these grants are for translating knowledge into the environment. So, again, this comes through, you know, Department of Surgery, um, emergency medicine, different ways of managing patients, whether it's a tool that they can then use to make their, their, their jobs easier, make it safer for the staff, make it safer for the patients, enable caregivers more to interact and, and support the people that they're giving care to, whether it's a nurse, a, a home care provider, um, a mother, a father, a son or a daughter, taking care of somebody older or younger. These are all translational skills, so tra knowledge translation to bring value um, and make patient care and patient health easier. It's kind of in everything. It's everywhere. Yep. yep. And that's that's the other reason why it's so much fun coming to work every day because, you know, I, I get to meet some really, really neat clinicians and very interesting patients and wonderful researchers. Uh, and, and we're all focused on the same thing. It's We, we want to move this huge, you know, body of knowledge forward, put put it to work where we can and drive value out of it and make things better. And we're all kind of doing it together. I mean, even getting your flu shot is fun here, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, it's like, Wow, oh. why is that? <laughs> oh, because they, they make the whole process fun. You know, they, they take a picture of you and tell you to smile and say, okay, well, are you getting the flu shot? <laughs> oh, okay, well, oh, well, I'm getting a flu shot for this reason. And then you get, you know, you get a free coffee or you, you know, they come around and say, okay, who needs a flu shot? And I'm telling the whole staff to get a flu shot. And then after we all get our flu shots, we all get candy. I mean, it's kind of silly, but it's, it engages people, you know, to do something that, something very simple for the greater good of everybody. And it's sure. going to benefit everybody. And then the attitude of the people here that, you know, to, you know, to bring, to bring it to us in that form makes it fun. Yeah. So yeah. it really does sound like there's a culture of a lot of people working to, uh, together Yes. and everyone's working on a different aspect of the same sort of broader problem, right? Everyone's in, in healthcare. Everyone's in the mm -hmm. same building. That's right. Everyone's using different skills. That's right. And you just have to figure out what works for you. That's right. So to that point, what advice, what final advice would you give to a student who's, again, in their grad program, they're maybe in the lab or in the clinic, and there's certain skills that they've acquired to do whatever they need to do in their program, but they're still not sure what they want to do after? I would say the first thing to do is get out of the lab. <laughs> not that being in the lab is, 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 is not good. It's just you need to, if you're confident you have certain skills, now you have to go and find out where those skills can be applied successfully and whether or not the successful application of those skills in other areas is going to be result in, you know, in a, an opportunity for you to have um, a paying position from that, that endeavor. And that, you know, that, you know, brings you to things like volunteering. It brings you to informational interviews. It, um, you know, it helps direct you to that next step and that path and, and try things. 
It doesn't, you know, a year at some, I always tell people oh, it's this. It's so scary though. <laughs> I know it is scary. It is very, very scary. But, you know, a year someplace, it's, it's okay. It's okay to take a year and to do something or, 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 or if you're, if you're quote unquote, even if you're doing nothing, people say it looks like you're doing nothing. It's not, you're doing nothing. You're traveling, you're, you're volunteering, you're taking time to reflect and you're, you're evaluating your skills, but you're always putting them towards something. As long as you can direct that, you know, your activity to show that you're, you're actively engaged in a certain skill development of part of who you are, then you can always talk to it. And a year isn't a long time. What do you think about even having these conversations with your supervisor and just sitting down with him or her and saying, could you just honestly tell me what are my strongest skills <laughs> to you? No, I, I think that's a good idea. And if they say, I don't know, well, who, who are you? <laughs> do well, I know you? <laughs> I, I would hope that they would not say that, but I, 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 I think we all, I think sometimes, it, I, I think it's a good thing because, I mean, if I went to my, my superior and I said, okay, so what do you think my... My strengths are. I think that there's certain things that I, I do that are very clear. Mm-hmm. That these things I'm good. At, I'm really good at these things. Yeah. I think there's other things that I do. I think I'm good at, but I don't think I. I know that I don't communicate it strongly enough that maybe I'm also good in these areas, mm-hmm. and that's for a variety of reasons. But there are also areas where you may think you're good at, but the reality is you're not. Yeah, and I think it's good to be able to have that kind of feedback from and somebody. fail. Yeah. Because yeah. you, you, you have to start by being aware of what you're good at and That's what right. you're not and That's right. improving. But sometimes you can just keep talking to yourself. Yeah, I'm good at this, but you need some honest feedback from, your, right. from your colleagues. Now, there, years ago, there, there was a th- the thinking was that uh, wherever you find out what your weaknesses are, what your strengths are, and you really spend time working on your weaknesses. Mm-hmm. But now it's actually flipped. And people say that... Most if you if you read mo- most human resource columns and you go through the Harvard Business Review on management and the management review you start you read that regularly you'll you'll see that the thinking now is that you actually should focus on your strengths and where you identify weaknesses like a, like you said earlier you you figure out what you need to do to ensure that you're actually competent in those areas but don't focus on them so if so long as they don't really undermine your success and exactly. what you need to do. Exactly, exactly. But play to your strengths. If you're if you're running an organization, and you don't have the strengths in certain areas, hire those people. So if you're running a company and you're not good at finance, hire a good accountant. You know, bring in a good lawyer, and make up for those those other aspects. But if you're really good at the business development, the communications, and the marketing. You do all that. For sure. Yeah. Darlene, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Uh, I feel like I always uh, come in and, and get my annual pep talk. <laughs> well, and thank you so much. And that sort of informs me in, in my decisions. This is the beginning for me and hopefully some more pep talk. Absolutely. Well, uh, where, where can people find your work? Um, I'm here at uh, 600 University, uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, Sinai Health System, room uh, 843 on the eighth floor. And we'll have your email posted as well for anyone yes. who's, who's interested. Feel free. And, and perhaps maybe see you uh, at, a, at a student, a grad student talk sometime soon near you. That I would uh, always glad, glad to come out and, and meet students and talk to students. Thanks and, for having and th- us. And thank you so much for this opportunity to, to speak so. with both of you. All the best. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook and Instagram at rawtalkpodcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. And she looked at me and she smiled and said, see, you should have listened. You listened to your mother.